Troy sends his regards. Um, Joshua had a bit of a sniffle, and so we had to keep him home. And he's only four, so I guess an adult had to stay home with him. So since I'm preaching, Roy um, Roy is home uh, watching over him at the moment. It's been a hard week for many Australians. Um, you know, first the bushfires, and then this long pandemic, and then the flooding. It feels, I'm sure, to them like there is no... Um, break. It just something after something after something, right? Catastrophe and tragedy and anxiety constantly impacting their lives. How do you bounce back? You know, how do you, how can you have any kind of hope for the future when, when things just keep knocking you down? What do you do when you are literally stuck in one place? Today is the last of our series on the pioneers of faith. I hope you've enjoyed, oh, let me go back. I hope you've enjoyed the series as much as um, we have, uh, preparing them and in reading through the stories that Amanda Buse has written, which was our inspiration. So today's our last part of our series on the pioneers of faith, and today's story is about Frank and Margaret Buttrill. Frank was born in Adelaide. I know some of you are from Adelaide. Um, on April 1st, 1871. He grew up to be a blacksmith, but he also studied engineering, and he also had a certificate as a steam engine driver, Martin. <laughs> um, there was a pandemic in that time, and so in the 1880s, I was looking at the, at the numbers, a million people died from the pandemic, and at the time, the global population was only about 1.5 billion. So can you imagine, one, one million people worldwide died from the, the flu um, pandemic in the 1880s. And that meant that because of the shortage of people, because so many people were sick or died, it left the mines in Broken Hill short of workers. So Frank moved from Adelaide to Broken Hill to drive and maintain the steam engines there. And while he was there, he saw the camel trains. So they had these African camels that they brought over. And because there were no roads yet built, um, these camels were used to transport um, items to the market and vice versa. And sometimes they would have to carry four huge bales of wool, you know, heavy and thick um, that that could be. So Frank felt so sorry for these camels as he watched them. You know, his heart broke for them. He's a real picture of the camel train in that time. And so he thought to himself, surely a traction engine could replace the camels and carry these bales. And so then in 1889, he, of his own accord, went down to Morgan, South Australia to purchase a traction engine. And so then he began the long drive from Morgan to Broken Hill. And since I have no knowledge of Australian geography, I have looked it up on Google Maps to help me visualize what that is. And as you can see, it's, it's almost 400 kilometers um, going from Morgan to Broken Hill with this traction engine. It was slow going. Every time he tried to make some progress, he would get bogged down in the sand drifts and Frank would have to dig it out. He would go a bit more, bogged down, dig it out. Finally, it got to the point, I don't know where along that journey, but it got so bogged down that he couldn't get it out. And after days of trying, he ran out of water and he finally had to give up and walk the long way home. But Frank didn't forget about the camel. And by the way, that engine is still there, covered in sand, just for years. 
But Frank didn't forget about the camels. So in 1906, he came up with this idea that he patented as the dreadnought wheel. There you go. Oh, here you go. The dreadnought wheel. And basically what he did was he invented this wheel that had these steel plates that rotated with the wheel to keep the tractors stable in the sand. And so he patented this, and then in 1908, Frank moved to Victoria. And um, he was a Methodist, but he attended a series of lectures that were being run in a tent. And you've heard me talk about this in the past few weeks, how back in that time, the uh, missionaries who would go around and share um, you know, Bible truths, they, you know, it was really expensive to rent halls, and so they would... They bought this tent and they would take it around, pitch it in an open square, invite everybody, advertise. And so when Frank got to Victoria and he attended these lectures, he was really drawn to the truths that were being taught. So after some Bible studies, he was baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist church. But there was something else that caught his eye. It wasn't just the word that captivated him. There was a young lady named Margaret Young who was a Bible worker. Um, giving Bible studies and, and publishing articles for the Bible Echo, which was the publication in that time that was published right here in Melbourne in North Fitzroy. Um, and he, Frank and Margaret fell in love. And so they actually got married right here in Melbourne at the North Fitzroy Seventh-day Adventist Church uh, on March 31st, 1909. Years passed, um, but Frank still hadn't forgotten about the camels. In 1915, Frank rented a yard in Richmond, and he began building a ginormous tractor. Oh, by the way, here's a picture of Frank and Margaret later in life. And he began building in Richmond a ginormous tractor fitted with his patent wheels. When I say ginormous, I mean ginormous. <laughs> this uh, tractor engine was over 10 meters long, and five and a half meters high, weighing 45 tons, and it pulled two massive trailers, each nine meters long. So 10 meters long, plus nine meters long, plus nine meters long, okay? So 45 tons plus whatever the trailers weighed. It was the biggest tractor in Australia, and possibly the world at that time. They named it Big Lizzie. He wanted to take Big Lizzie to Broken Hill to replace the camel trains. So, in 1916, filled with two trailers of supplies and tents, Frank and Margaret set out on Big Lizzie along with uh, brother, their brother and nephew, a vegetarian dog, a pen of chooks, and a rosella swinging in the cage in front. And they estimated about nine months for this journey, okay? So once again, geography, 800 plus kilometers. Um, no roads. They would have to forge their way um, to Broken Hill. And they thought, oh, nine months should do it. No. <laughs> the very first problem they encountered was getting out of Richmond. Okay, can you imagine... Right? What's that? 28 meters long, five and a half meters high, trying to get out of Richmond. And they, not only did they have to face the traffic of the horse wagons, but they also had to raise all the telegraph poles and wires that they would snag along the way. 
Plus, Big Lizzie has those, you know, detractor. So it like crushes the path as it goes. So they literally like crush the pavement on their way out. So then Frank would have to go then behind and repair the road. <laughs> so it took them two days to just clear out of Melbourne. Once they got out of Melbourne, progress was slow because even at full speed, Big Lizzie only traveled at 1.6 kilometers an hour. I think for Big Lizzie to like cycle, it was like 60 meters. Okay, so it's very slow, very big machine. Of course, it also rained constantly, and the rivers became flooded. And it took three weeks of de-snagging. I don't even know what that means, but something having to do with digging the earth and you know making sure that it was stable enough uh, near Elmore before Big Lizzie could cross the river there. At one point, rumor spread. This is a German spy machine. And so then the police came and stopped Frank and Margaret and investigated them. Are you a German spy? So that took time as well. Then at Echuca, the Murray River flooded. And so Frank and Margaret had to take Big Lizzie on a detour. And as you can imagine, it's too massive to cross a bridge because it'll completely destroy it. So they either had to wait for the rivers to subside or try to ford it if, if it wasn't flooded. And every town that they passed, nobody wanted this thing to like destroy the town. So they had to go around every town. What they thought was going to be nine months became 22 months. And they didn't get to Broken Hill. After 22 months on the road, Big Lizzie arrived in Mildura to find the Murray River there flooded. They were out of funds, out of options, stuck in Mildura with this ginormous machine. <laughs> they had failed to achieve their mission. So was it all for nothing? No, because during their 22-month journey, their focus was not just about getting to Broken Hill. Their focus was on a longer journey, a heavenly destination. And so everywhere they went, whenever they camped somewhere, and at one point they were in one place for five months um, fixing Lizzie, doing repairs, Frank and Margaret would befriend the locals, give Bible studies, share Jesus, share what they knew about the Bible. And every Sabbath, they rested from their work and invited the locals to join them on Big Lizzie for worship. And so first people came out because this is, you know, can you imagine in the early 1900s, they had never seen something like this. And so people would, would come just out of curiosity to come and sit on Big Lizzie um, and and get to know and, and see it up close. So at first they came out of curiosity, but then they returned because they came to love Frank and Margaret. They came to enjoy the Bible studies. In Mildura, um, a young graduate of Avondale College named Walter Scragg came to Mildura in 1919 as a corporator or literature evangelist, um, which is someone who comes and sells religious books and publications. And so he was going you know, door to door selling these books and, and giving Bible studies, and he found a lot of interest amongst the people. So then um, they asked for a pastor to come and conduct a tent series. And so in 1919, uh, June, Pastor H. Letts came and did a series of lectures. 
and people were baptized. And on November 29, 1919, 20 members, including Frank and Margaret Bottrell, formed the Mildura Seventh-day Adventist Church. Margaret often preached, visited locals, and held Bible studies, just as she continued to do while traveling on Big Lizzie. And today, the Mildura Church, and I, this is fresh information because um, I confirmed with the pastor there yesterday, um, they have around 400 members today. And they just celebrated a few years ago their 100th year anniversary. But that wasn't the end of Big Lizzie or Frank or Margaret. While in Mildura, Big Lizzie carted wheat during the harvest. Big Lizzie broke the record carrying 899 bags of wheat weighing 70 tons. At this time, uh, around this time, World War I had ended. So in 1918, the war ends and the soldiers start coming back home. And the Victorian state government set up uh, a scheme called a settlement scheme to support these returning soldiers with work. And so what they did was they uh, allocated land to be subdivided into smaller farming blocks to be leased to the soldiers so that they would have farms. And the biggest settlement uh, was in Red Cliffs. Once again, thanks to Google Maps. Um, oh, no, I don't have a Google Maps, sorry. Red Cliffs is 15 kilometers from Mildura. And so the government allocated 15,000 acres of land there to be subdivided into 700 farming blocks. But many of these soldiers, you know, came back with injuries, you know, with post-war injuries. And the harsh landscape with the scorching climate made clearing by hand impossible. And this is where Big Lizzie made history. In 1920, Frank got the contract to clear the land. And so with the group of up to 16 men, let me go back to this one, 16 men, they would... Um, hook Big Lizzie up with cables to trees and things, and they cleared up to 50 acres a day. It took four years, um, but Big Lizzie is responsible for creating the 700 settlement, settlement blocks for these veterans for World War I. When he finished the work in 1924, the question was, now what? Would he now go back to Broken Hills? Well, by this point, roads had been built in Broken Hill. And so wagons and vehicles were now replacing the camels. So Frank didn't need to go back there anymore. So from Red Cliffs, Frank and Margaret drove Big Lizzie to Western Victoria um, to clear more land. And I think this is where the map is. Here we go. So they now uh, had to drive Big Lizzie down over 300, nearly 400 kilometers to um, west of the Grampians. They had a job uh, contract waiting for them there, and, the, and they had been told, come and clear this land, and then afterwards you can farm one of the, one of the areas. And so Frank and Margaret make their 18-month journey <laughs> to get down there. And as soon as they got there, they started clearing the red gum trees um, that had been sawed, and shipped to Melbourne to create the tram tracks we have today. And so, um, they, you know, they were cutting down trees, and Big Lizzie would go and clear the land of the stumps and etc. But the problem was, as as he was working, you know, he worked, he got there straight away, started working. But then on Sabbath day, on Saturday, Frank and Margaret would stop the engines and rest. And the station manager who had the contract with them 
was very unhappy. He said, "Why aren't you working on today?" I said, "Well, it's my Sabbath, and so um, I'm resting today." The manager was not happy, so the manager decided to hire someone else with a different type of machine to clear the land. And so Big Lizzie was out of a job. Frank and Margaret was left penniless. They had no more resources and nowhere else to take this big thing, so they were forced to abandon Big Lizzie there. In 1928, Frank and Margaret returned to Red Cliffs area, where Frank returned to work as a blacksmith. And then, but you know, he didn't just do that. Of course, he and Margaret also. Founded the Darrington Seventh Day Adventist Church, where he served Frank served as its elder and treasurer until his death on the seventh of January, nineteen fifty-three. And Margaret Buttrell, who continued to preach and give Bible studies, she was actually given the honor of laying the foundation stone for that church. She died on April twenty-ninth, nineteen sixty-five. And what happened to Big Lizzie? For many years, Big Lizzie just sat where it had been abandoned, rusting away. At one point,、um, the manager sold the engine, so off the 15-ton engine went. But the 30 pounds left of Lizzie just sat there, and they were going to sell it for parts, for scrap. When a man who had been part of the Mildura, he was the president of the Mildura Shire, and an avid historian. Found out that that Big Lizzie was sitting there rusting and was about to be sold for scrap, and he was tireless in getting、um, a committee together to restore and bring Big Lizzie back to Red Cliffs. And so, thanks to his efforts, the committee、uh, was able to bring Big Lizzie to the Red Cliffs、um, Golden Jubilee in 1971. And so, that's a picture of them bringing it in 1971. And she's there today, in Barclay Square War Memorial Park, and they've been able to restore Big Lizzie and one trailer, and then years later they found another trailer rusting away somewhere else, and because it had been sold, and they are actually restoring it now. And the plan is that in 2022 they're going to have a celebration and and restore Big Lizzie and the two trailers、um, here. What's remarkable about this story for me is that, despite literal roadblock after roadblock, detours and delays, prejudice and poverty, Frank and Margaret weren't bitter or broken. According to Graham Quick, who wrote about Frank in his book *Remarkable Australian Farm Machines*, he says, "Oopsie," he says,、uh, "Butchell never made it to Broken Hill." Despite numerous setbacks, however, Frank Bottrell, who was a faithful Seventh Day Adventist, was never known to swear or drink or lose his temper. A patient man, he never made that trip to Broken Hill, but finished his working days as a land clearing contractor. It's amazing to me that someone from the outside, looking at his life, can say, "Wow, he was a faithful man." For many, Frank and Margaret's story. Is one of failure. They never made it to Broken Hill. They never made a lot of money. Big Lizzie rusted for so long, almost got sold for scrap metal. Frank's invention became obsolete when the Caterpillar tract was designed, and 
you know, became the popular uh, way to go through sand today. So much of their lives were spent trying to get somewhere that never eventuated. Their talents and time seemed wasted. But when Jesus comes again, he's not going to ask them, how successful were you in your career? How much money did you make? How many books are written about you? Instead, he will introduce them to the generations of church communities and families and individuals who are impacted by their faithfulness. And he will say, well done, my good and faithful servants. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. What legacy are you living for? You know, we live in a challenging world. There are many wonderful and good things in it, but there's also really painful things we have to navigate. Sometimes it may feel like you're trying to move a 45-ton monstrosity across sand dunes. Sometimes it's going to feel like every step forward is breaking you and taking you backwards. Life can be relentless. Life can be relentless. How do we keep moving forward? How do we continue to have hope and purpose and motivation when we have to leave something or someone behind? When our dreams are unfulfilled and our efforts seem wasted? When we feel stuck or displaced from where you thought you would be at this stage of your life? How can we move forward? As this is the last of our series on the pioneers of faith, I thought it'd be nice to end with Hebrews chapter 11, which is a chapter about faith. And Hebrews 11 defines faith as confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then the writer goes on to talk about Bible characters in history who had faith, men and women, who who never got to see their dreams fulfilled, who never got to their destinations, who never got their rewards. But by faith, they followed what God asked of them. For example, by faith, Abraham, when he came to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And then there's another example given of a man named Moses, who had grown up as an adopted prince of Egypt, with all the privileges and wealth and education. But he chose to identify with the slaves with his people the hebrews and so he says by faith moses when he had grown up refused to be known as the son of pharaoh's daughter he chose to be mistreated along with the people of god rather than to enjoy the fleeting fleeting pleasures of sin he disregarded he regarded grace dis, oh, sorry he regarded disgrace for the sake of christ as of greater value than the treasures of egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward and, and what is his reward? What is Katerina von Bora's reward? Remember her? She was the first person I spoke about who was the wife of Martin Luther. She risked death to escape the convent 
to join this new movement that wanted to look and study the Bible. What was what is John and Julia Corliss's reward? Remember them? They were the missionaries who 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 came from America to come to this bleak city of Melbourne that was cold and rainy, and they worked day after day trying to share Jesus with those here. What is Neville Westwood's Westwood's reward? Roy preached about him driving this car, right, and sharing Bible studies along the way. What is Joseph and Julia Steed's reward? They were the ones who, remember Julia, literally lived in a tiny tent while her husband went all around doing corporate work. Um, and she and, and jo- uh, Joseph um, were the reasons that many, many people became believers. And Frank and Margaret, of course. What did they all live for? It wasn't for fame or prestige or wealth or popularity or comfort. They all lived for his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They didn't always see the fruit of their labors and their faithfulness, and they certainly died without receiving any rewards. But they left us a legacy of faith, a legacy that we are invited to join. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say this. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, next weekend is Easter. And in the eyes of history, Jesus failed that Friday. He was only in his 30s and he died as a convicted criminal, not a penny to his name, betrayed and abandoned by his own. But through his greatest failure, he became the pioneer and perfecter of faith, carving out the path for us to follow. What's going to be our legacy? What will be our story a hundred years from now? How will we be remembered? I pray that we will be remembered for having been pioneers of faith, Individuals were willing to take risks to share Jesus with the world. And I pray that 200, 300 in the future, that Melbourne City Adventist Church is in history, not for having a great time together by ourselves, but for having made an impact in the city of Melbourne. And I pray that as we think about not just next year or five years from now or even 30 years from now, as we, as we look at our lives with eternity in our minds, that we'd be able to prioritize God and his kingdom and that we too would follow the examples of these incredible men and women in history and say, God, what can I do for you? God, what do you want for my life? Surely there is more to live for than just the daily things that we do every day. And there's nothing wrong with them. We have to do them, right? 
But there's something more. There's something greater that God wants for us. So that while we're doing our work, right, whatever it is, whether it's on Big Lizzie or whether it's, you know, working in the hospital or whether it's working in the schools or whatever it is that you do, that along the way, we can leave an everlasting impact on the people around us by leading them closer to getting to know and love Jesus. Please bow your heads with me as we pray. Danny, Father, we thank you for the pioneers of faith who have gone before us. And we thank you for Jesus, the ultimate pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who is able to give us encouragement and strength to keep going. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. It's really hard sometimes, Father God, because we get distracted by the goals and the expectations of others, the standards that the world sets before us. But Father, help us to realize that all of that is not as important as helping others learn about you, as preparing for your second coming, as looking forward to that great reunion when we get to meet these individuals and ask them questions and hear the stories and, and get to see that it was all worth it in the end because of the surpassing glory of knowing you. And Father, increase our faith. Help us as a church community, as individuals, as leaders in our community even, to make an impact for you and to help others, not just in our work, but to really help them spiritually, emotionally, in every way, so that they can know the incredible love you have for them. This is our prayer in your son's name. Amen.